Welcome to another episode of the Edward Mullen Podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Edward Mullen, and today is going to be a very special podcast to me because it's one that I've been planning on doing for a while, but I just haven't really had a chance to get around to doing it. So if you have been following me either on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or or read any of my books, uh, you'll notice there's three things that become apparent. Uh, Obviously, number one, I like to write. Uh, Number two, I seem to post a lot of stuff about superheroes. And number three, I make a lot of reference to Greek culture. So, you know, in some of my, I have a cat named Socrates, which I take a lot of photos of. I have, you know, shirts um, with with Socrates, the actual guy, not the cat. I have, you know, poster in the background of my, if some of my photos uh, in some of my earlier videos of Socrates. Uh, my blog is called Plato's Academic. Um, and there's a reason for this. Uh, back in... I don't know, 2005, I took a class called The Philosophy of Plato, and I became enthralled with Plato. And Plato is a guy who existed, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, he he was a philosopher, a mathematician, a student of Socrates, and perhaps most importantly, he's the writer of the Socratic Dialogues. Now, what are the Socratic Dialogues? Uh, you may have heard Socrates, the name, is very, very famous philosopher, uh, but actually, Socrates didn't write anything down. He spoke a lot. He was an orator, if you will. And uh, everything we know about Socrates actually comes from Plato, which have led some people to think that Socrates may not have actually been a real person. He was just the main character of uh, Plato's works. So he'd be like Robert Langdon to Dan Brown or something like that. But, you know, there's other references uh, that, you know, other bodies of work that make reference to Socrates. So he's probably a real guy. So the Socratic dialogues are like vast. They've you've got I don't know how many there are, but there's huge volumes, and they're written kind of like a fly on the wall perspective of of somebody following Socrates around and recording everything he says. Now, obviously, these aren't exactly Socrates' words, or maybe not even Socrates' opinions. There's some instances where people think Plato actually uh, changed some of Socrates' words, or in input his own views but aside from that Socrates is very Batman-y in the sense that he just wants to fight for justice and right wrongs just like Batman goes out every night fighting crime he doesn't want any money he just wants to clean up his city similarly Socrates goes out and he tries to find wise men now the reason he does this will be explained in this podcast I'm going to outline what's called Plato's Apology in which it's actually a Greek word, uh, apologia, which means a defense. So it's not that Socrates is apologizing for anything. In fact, it's the opposite. So in this dialogue, Socrates has been brought in front of a group of his peers in uh, the legal system, and he's being tried for certain uh, crimes, let's say. So he goes in front of a group of his peers, the 501 fellow Athenians, and he is you know, indicted for breaking several laws of impiety. And piety basically means, you know, what the gods love. It's It doesn't really mean that. And um, if you read the Euthyphro, it's very clear that that word, it's very hard to define that word, but that's roughly what it means. So he's being charged for breaking that law and uh, for offending the, the gods of Olympias, like, you know, Zeus and Apollo and, you know, the rest of them. So, you know, I'm basically going to take certain selections from uh, this this dialogue and uh, to tell a story. And, uh, you know, in some cases I'll paraphrase it. In some cases I'll just read it. So Socrates begins um, in front of his 501 Athenians 
he basically starts out with a bunch of junk about being able to speak the way he speaks. And he just has a certain way of speaking. And, you know, he's basically apologizing if his way of speaking is not conducive to the courtroom. So after he gets all that out of the way, he starts out by saying, there have been many who have accused me, but none of their accusations are true. But the fear I have, gentlemen, is that most of these accusers have got a hold of you from a very young age, from childhood, and persuaded you and accused me falsely, saying that there's this man called Socrates, and he's a student of all things in the sky and the earth below, who makes the worse argument the stronger. But I want you to realize that my accusers are of two kinds. Those who have accused me recently and the ones that I've mentioned who have accused me for a long time ago. And I must first defend myself against the latter, for you have also heard their accusations first and are a much greater extent than the more recent. I must surely defend myself and attempt to uproot from the minds in such a short time that this slander has resided in you for so long. So he knows what he's up against is incredibly challenging. So he says, let us take the first case from the beginning. That is where this accusation arose from and, and to address those who have slandered him. So he first, he starts out by reading, uh, the affidavit that says Socrates is guilty of wrongdoing and that he busies himself with studying things in the sky and the earth below. And he makes the worse argument into the stronger argument and he teaches the same things to others. He says, this isn't true at all. I'm not a teacher and you know I haven't taken a fee for anything like this. So, you know, after that, he goes on for a bunch of junk. And then he says, one of you perhaps might interrupt me and say, but Socrates, what is your occupation? From where did this slander come from? For surely, if you do not busy yourself with something out of the common, all these rumors and talk would not have arisen unless you did something other than most people. What has caused the reputation is none other than a certain kind of wisdom. Human wisdom, perhaps? Even if you think I am boasting for the story, I should tell you that it does not originate with me. What actually happened was, you know, Cherifon, he's my childhood friend and the friend of most of you. Well, one day he went to the Delphi. Now, Delphi is a archaeological site in Greece and now I believe a modern town. And there was an oracle there who is thought to have received wisdom from Apollo. Apollo basically speaks through this oracle. And this uh, childhood friend of Socrates named Cherifon uh, went to this oracle and asked the oracle if any man was wiser than Socrates. And the oracle replied, no one was wiser. And Socrates says, well, Seraphon's uh, dead now, but you know his brother will testify to this. So upon hearing this, Socrates is very confused. And he says, you know, is this a riddle? Is this like some kind of joke? I mean, how can I be the wisest person? I don't know anything. What does it mean that this oracle says, I am the wisest? For surely the oracle doesn't lie. And so for a long time, this bothered him and he's just at a loss for its meaning. So he reluctantly turned in his investigation outward. So he went around like Batman in the night and tried to find an answer to this riddle. So what he did was he went to those who were, you know, thought to have a reputation for being wise people that, um, you know, if he could prove that people were wiser than him, then the Oracle could be wrong, essentially. Um, he first went to Euthyphro, which is another is a title of another dialogue in Plato and uh, Euthyphro, he challenges Euthyphro on what is piety and they go back and forth as a definition. And, you know, that's why I, I struggle to define what piety is. So he says, um, I first examined this man uh, who I thought was wiser, but, you know, I'll leave his name out of the court. I, but he's one of our public men. Uh, and my experience was something like this. I thought he appeared to be wise to many and especially to himself, but he was not. 
I then tried to show him that he thought himself was wise but was not, and as a result, he came to dislike me, and so did many of the, the bystanders. So I withdrew and thought to myself, I am wiser than this man. It is likely that none of us know anything worthwhile at all, but he thinks he knows something when he does not, whereas I don't know anything, but nor do I think I do. So likely I am wiser than to him in some small extent. I don't think I know when I don't know. So after this, Socrates approaches another man uh, who th- he thought was wiser than him, and this man thought the same thing. And, he, and Socrates says, and so too I questioned him, and I became disliked by both him and many others. After that, I proceeded systematically and realized uh, to my sorrow and alarm that I was getting very unpopular. But I thought I must attach the greatest importance to the God's oracle. So I must go to all those who have the reputation of being wise, all those who have the reputation of knowledge and examine their meaning. And then he says, to tell you the truth, I experienced something like this. And then he goes on to tell you uh, his investigation, which, which is kind of funny. He says, in my investigation in the service of God, I found that those who had the highest reputation were the most efficient, while those who were thought to be inferior actually turned out to be the most knowledgeable. So, you know, Socrates goes around, he goes to politicians and poets and writers and, and, and carpenters. And in every case, they turn out to be more ignorant than he is. So he says, I went to the poets and I asked them what their poems mean. And I'm ashamed to tell you the truth, gentlemen, but the authors couldn't tell me. I soon realized that the poets do not compose their poems with knowledge, but with some inborn talent and inspiration. Because of their poetry, though, they thought themselves very wise in other aspects, which they were not at all. So again, I withdrew, thinking that I had some advantage over them, as I had with the politicians. And finally, I went to the craftsmen. But men of Athens, the good craftsmen seem to me to have the same fault as the poets. Each of them, because of the success of his craft, thought himself very wise in most other important pursuits. And this error of theirs overshadowed their wisdom they had. So Socrates concludes his investigation and he becomes very unpopular. He kind of embarrasses these people in a public setting. And that's why these people don't like him. So many of the slanders and the bad reputation uh, come from, from this kind of setting. And come from these people who, in the most case, because Socrates is going around to the, the most reputable people, the smartest politicians, you know, the, the poets, the people that are revered in society, and he's making them look foolish in front of everybody. And these people are very influential. So uh, they're kind of getting back at Socrates for embarrassing them. And that's basically why he's in court right now. So after that, he says, even now I continue the investigation. I go around seeking anyone, citizen or stranger, whoever I think is wise. And... If I don't think he is, I come to the assistance of God and show them that he is not wise. So, and like all the bystanders uh, thought that Socrates possessed the wisdom that he proved that the interlocutors did not have. So, you know, if a bystander was listening to the conversation, they would think Socrates is more wise than the person who's claimed to be, uh, you know, have the knowledge in that subject. What Socrates denounces, he's like, no, that's not true. It just appears that way. So this is so he, so basically he's saying this is my occupation. I just go around at leisure and engage in public affairs to any extent. So he's like, yeah, I, I can barely like take care of myself. I live in great poverty, and I'm just basically a service to God. And uh, because of this, you know, um, some young men follow me around, and they do so at their free will. And they have a, you know they're they don't have jobs, so they have a lot of leisure time, and they're the sons of very rich, uh, rich people, and they take pleasure in hearing people questions. And uh, they themselves often imitate Socrates and find an abundance of people that they claim to have knowledge, but they know little or nothing, which, you know, further upsets people. And they basically blame Socrates. They say, that man Socrates corrupts the youth. Um, But Socrates is like, well, if you ask them, 
what is it that I'm corrupting them with? What is it that I'm teaching them that is corrupting them? They'll all fall silent. They, they can't answer that question. And they appear to be at a loss. But they'll undoubtedly come out with some accusation against all philosophers saying, you know, they talk about the things in the earth and the sky and not believing in gods and making the worse argument the stronger. So yeah, basically making the worse argument the stronger is another way of saying it's basically what it sounds like. You take something that appears to be the weaker argument and you make the other guy look so foolish who has the stronger argument, but, you know, the guy with the knowledge, like let's say Socrates is discussing something with a poet. Well, surely the poet knows more about the poem than Socrates, but Socrates just does these kind of question and answers back and forth and it becomes very clear that the poet doesn't know what he's talking about so that's why it's it's like you know making the weak argument appear the stronger and make socrates look wise when actually he's not wise he's just making the other person he's just kind of highlighting the fact the other person doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about so socrates goes around and he's still addressing the court he's saying look this is what's the situation this is where my slander and the the reputation comes from but these people are these people are powerful people these people are ambitious violent and numerous and they'll continually and convincingly talk about me they've been filling your ears for a long time with vehement slanders against me so miletus and antonus and lycon these are the opposing counsel that are trying socrates in court and and socrates says look miletus he's vexed on behalf of the poets Antonus on behalf of the craftsmen and the politicians, and Lycon on behalf of the orators, so that I started by saying I should be surprised if I can rid you of so much slander in such a short amount of time. But, you know, Socrates is saying, look, I'm speaking the truth. If it's hidden or disguised, you'll be able to find out. So if you look into it either now or later, this is basically what you'll find. Okay, so... At this point, Socrates shifts his focus from the 501 Athenians uh, directly to Miletus, who is the main lawyer for the opposing council. And he's addressing Miletus's charge that Socrates corrupts the youth. So if you don't know anything about Socrates, he has a question and answering kind of style that often trips people up and exposes them for not knowing. It's called the Socratic method. So, and he's about to get going. Okay, so he starts off by asking Miletus. He says, Surely you consider it the greatest importance that our young men be as good as possible. And Miletus is like, Indeed, I do. So then he says, Okay, go ahead, tell us. You obviously know. You say that you've discovered the one who corrupts them, namely me, and you bring me here and accuse me to these men. And Miletus falls silent. You see, Miletus, you're silent. You don't know what to say. Does this not seem shameful to you? And sufficient proof of what I was saying earlier that you've not been concerned with any of this. Go ahead, tell me, what improves our young men? So Miletus is like, uh, the laws? And Socrates is like, no, that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, what person has the knowledge of the laws? So Miletus answers, well, the jurymen, Socrates. And he goes, how do you mean, Miletus? Are they able to educate our young men and improve them? Miletus says, certainly. And Socrates uh, clarifies, he goes, do you mean all of them or some of them and not others? And Miletus answers, all of them. So if you're ever in a debate with somebody and you want to expose the weakness of their argument, you always try to get them to commit to something that's very easily defeated. It's called a straw man fallacy. So, and, and you try to avoid this in yourself. So when somebody says all of something, try to avoid absolutes whenever you argue because absolutes are really easily defeated because all you need to do is find one example where it's not the case and your whole argument starts to crumble. So, for instance, you say, well, all people would would clearly see that this is the way or everybody who goes to the gym does this. You know what I mean? And and even words like most, uh, those can be defeated, too, because then you have to now provide some stat, which 
validates your argument. You know, like most people would vote for this guy. It's like, according to what? You know, but if you say, you know, some people think this, some people think this is a good movie, then it's very hard to dispute that because, yeah, it's conceivable there are some people that like that. So he, that's what Socrates is trying to do. He's trying to back Miletus into a corner and getting him to commit to certain things, and then he's going to defeat him. So he again asks him, do all the people educate the young and improve them, or just some of them and not others? And Miletus goes, all of them. So then Socrates says, ah, very good. So what about the audience? Do they improve our young or not? And Miletus says, yeah, they do too. Socrates goes, what about the members of council? And Miletus answers, yeah, the council, they do too. And then Socrates goes, well, Miletus, what about the assembly? Do the members of assembly corrupt the youth or do they improve them? And Miletus is, you know, growing tired of this, not knowing where this line of questioning is, is headed. And Miletus goes, yeah, they improve them. So then Socrates goes, so all the Athenians, it seems, make the young into fine, good men, except me. I alone corrupt them. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Miletus goes, that is most definitely what I mean. So then Socrates starts going through other examples. He says, well, tell me, if this is true, does it apply to horses as well? Do all the men improve the horses and one individual corrupts them? Or is the contrary true? One individual or a few, namely the horse breeders, are able to improve them, and the majority, who have no knowledge of horses, corrupt them. Is that not the case, Miletus, with both with horses and other animals? And Miletus doesn't answer, and Socrates goes... Of course it is, whether you or Antonus say so or not. It would be a very happy state of affairs if only one person corrupted our youth while all the others improved them. He's like, come on, Miletus, you've made it sufficiently obvious that you've never had any concern for our youth. You show your indifference clearly that you've never given thought to the subject. And you bring me to trial for this? Then he shifts his line of questioning. He says, now answer me this. Is it better for a man to live with good people or wicked people? Do the wicked not harm those who are around them, whereas good people benefit them? Miletus thinks for a moment. He says, certainly. So is there a person that you can think of that would rather be harmed than benefited by his associates? In other words, is there any man that wants to be harmed? And Miletus says, no, of course not. So Socrates says, okay, well, do you accuse me of corrupting the youth deliberately or unwillingly? Miletus says, deliberately, of course. Okay, then, Miletus, what follows then is that I have reached such a state of ignorance, which I unwillingly hang around with wicked people and be harmed by it, and I don't even realize this. So if that's what you're saying, Miletus, that's preposterous, and I don't believe you. I don't believe you think that, and I don't think anyone else here does either. So either I do not corrupt the youth, or if I do so, I do so unwillingly, and in either case, you're lying. Now, if I corrupt them unwillingly, then the law does not require you to bring me to court for such unwilling wrongdoings. They just simply get a hold of me privately and tell me of my error, and I shall cease to do what I am doing unwillingly. You, however, have avoided my company and are unwilling to instruct me. Instead, you bring me here where the law requires one to bring those who are in need of punishment, not of instruction. So Socrates then turns his attention to the rest of the jurymen and says, So, men of Athens, Miletus is obviously never concerned with these matters. Miletus, how is it that I corrupt the youth? It's obvious from your deposition that you think that I'm teaching them not to believe in the gods whom the city believes in, but in other spiritual things. Is this what you're saying? And Miletus says, this is most certainly what I'm saying. So at this time, Socrates asks Miletus for clarification. He says, Miletus, make it clear to me and to these men, I can't be sure what you mean. 
Are you saying that I teach the belief that there are some gods, in which case I'm not an atheist? Or are you saying that I don't believe in the gods in whom this city believes, but I believe in others? Is this the charge you bring against me? Or do you mean that I don't believe in any gods at all, and that this is what I teach to others? And Miletus says, yes, this is what I mean, that you do not believe in gods at all. And Socrates is like, Miletus, you're a strange fellow. Why do you say this? What do you think of me, Miletus? Of course I believe in gods. And if you say I don't, you cannot be believed. And then Socrates turns to the jury and he says, This man appears to me, man of Athens, highly insolent and uncontrolled. He seems to have made the deposition out of insolence, violence, and youthful zeal. He is like one who has composed a riddle and is trying it out. Will the wise Socrates realize that I am jesting and contradicting myself, or shall I deceive him and others? I think he contradicts himself in his affidavit, saying, Socrates is guilty not believing in gods, but believing in gods. I mean, surely this is part of a court jester. Examine with me, gentlemen, how he appears to contradict himself. So, Miletus, I ask you, does any man believe in human activities who does not believe in humans? Does any man believe in horses and not in horse activities? Or in flute-playing activities and not in flute players? No, good sir, no man could. If you're not willing to answer, I will tell these men. Answer the next question, however. Does any man believe in spiritual activities who does not believe in spirits? And Miletus says, no one. Thank you for answering, Socrates says. Now, you say that I believe in spiritual things and I teach about them, whether new or old, but at any rate, spiritual things according to what you say, and this is what you've sworn in your deposition. But if I believe in spiritual things, I must quite inevitably believe in spirits. Is that not so? Do we not believe spirits to be either gods or children of gods? Yes or no? Answer me. Miletus says, of course. Okay then, since I do believe in spirits, as you admit, if spirits are gods, this is what I mean to say when this man speaks in riddles and in jest, as you state that I do not believe in gods, and then yet I do, since I believe in spirits. If, on the other hand, you're saying that spirits are the children of gods, what man would believe in the children of gods to exist but not gods? That would be just as absurd as to believe the young of horses exist but not believe in the existence of horses. Miletus, Either to test us, or because you were just at a loss to find any true wrongdoing of which you could accuse me, there is no way in which you could persuade anyone with even a small intelligence that it is possible for one man to believe in spiritual but not divine things, and then again for that same man to believe in neither spirits nor gods nor in heroes. Men of Athens, I do not think that it requires a prolonged defense to prove that I am not guilty of the charges in Miletus' deposition, but you know this is sufficient so far. The only thing I'm guilty of, which I stated earlier, is being unpopular with many. This will be my undoing, if I am undone, not Miletus or Antonus, but the slanders and the envy of many men. This has destroyed many other good men and will, I think, continue to do so. There is no danger that it will stop at me. So Socrates says, You know, someone might say, Are you not ashamed, Socrates, to follow the kind of occupation that has led to your being in danger of death? The truth of the matter, men of Athens... Wherever a man has taken a position that he believes to be the best, or has been placed by his commander, he remains in the face of danger, without a thought for death or anything else. So Socrates believes that he's been placed in a position by God, according to the oracle, said, you're the wisest man, to conduct philosophy, to examine himself and others. So he says, I had, at the risk of death, like anyone else, remained at my post, where you had elected to command and had ordered me, and then, when the god ordered me, I thought and believed to live the life of a philosopher, to examine myself and others. I had abandoned my post for fear of death or anything else. That would have been a dreadful thing. 
And then I might truly have justly been brought here for not believing that there are gods, disobeying the oracle, fearing death, and thinking I was wise when I was not. And then he's got a great quote, which I love. It says, To fear death, gentlemen, is no other than to think oneself wise when one is not, to think one knows when one does not know. No one knows whether death may be the greatest of all blessings, yet they fear it as if it's the greatest of all evils. And surely it is the most blameworthy of ignorance to believe that one knows when one does not know. And it is perhaps on this point, and in this respect, gentlemen, that I differ from the majority of men. Now, if I make the claim that I'm wiser than anyone in anything, it would be in this respect, that I have no knowledge of things in the underworld. But I do know, however, that it is wicked and shameful to do wrong, to disobey one's superior, and I shall never fear or avoid things which I do not know, whether they may be bad or may be things that I know to be bad. So even if you acquit me now and believe Antonus, who said earlier, I should not be brought here in the first place, or that now that I am here, you can avoid executing me, for if I should be acquitted, your sons will continue to practice the teachings of Socrates, and all will be thoroughly corrupted. If you said to me in this regard, Socrates, we do not believe Antonus now, we acquit you, but only under the condition that you spend no more time on this investigation and do not practice philosophy, and if you're caught doing so, you will die. And if you acquit me on those terms, I would say to you, men of Athens, I am grateful, I am your friends, but I only obey the God. I'd rather obey God than obey you. For as long as I draw breath and I'm able, I shall not cease to practice philosophy, to extort you, and in my usual way, to point out any one of you whom I happen to meet. So to recap, Socrates is going around practicing philosophy, pissing people off, and he's brought to court for it, and uh, he's about to be punished by death. And he's just hypothetically saying, well, hey, look, if you know that you practice this way and you're pissing everyone off and you know the consequence is death, why do you do it? He says, first of all, I do this because I am under instruction by the gods to do this, to carry out philosophy and to investigate you and anyone whom I meet. And if I die doing so, uh, I should not fear death because, you know, we don't know that death might be a good thing. So he basically adds insult to injury because he's not, he knows that the reason why he's there is because he's insulted some rich people with influence. But he says, you know what? Wealth does not bring about excellence, but excellence makes wealth and everything good for men, both individually and collectively. Now, if by saying this, I corrupt the youth, this advice must not be harmful. But if anyone says that I give different advice, then he is talking nonsense. Be sure of this, gentlemen. If you kill the sort of man that I say I am, you will not harm me more than yourselves. Neither Miletus nor Antonus can harm me in any way, for I do not think it's permitted that a better man be harmed by a worser man. Certainly he might be able to kill me or perhaps banish me or disfranchise me, which he and maybe others think is a great harm, but I do not see it this way. I think he's doing self a much greater harm doing what he is now doing, attempting to have a man executed unjustly. Indeed, men of Athens, I am far from making a defense now on my own behalf, but on yours." to prevent you from wrongdoing by mistreating the God's gift to you by condemning me. For if you kill me, you will not easily find another one like me. Another such man will not easily come to be among you. And if you believe me, you will spare me. Sure, you might easily be annoyed with me as people are when they are aroused from a doze and strike out at me. If convinced by Antonus, you could easily kill me. And then you can sleep on for the rest of your days unless the God, in his care for you, sent someone else. That I am the kind of person to be a gift of God to the city you might realize from the fact that it does not seem like human nature for me to be have neglected my own affairs and to have tolerated this neglect for so many years while I was always concerned with you, approaching each one of you like a father or an elder or a brother to persuade you to care for virtue. 
Now, if I profit from this by charging a fee for my advice, then there would be some sense to it. But you can see for yourselves that for all their shameless accusations, my accusers have not been able in their imprudence to bring forward a witness to say I have received a fee or ever asked for one. However, I have a convincing witness that I speak the truth. My poverty. And then Socrates delivers perhaps the most Batman-y of quotes, where he says, A man who really fights for justice must lead a private, not a public life, if he is to survive even for a short time. And then he asks the men of Athens, Do you think I would have survived all these years if I were engaged in public affairs, acting as a good man must, came to the help of justice and considered this the most important thing? Far from it, and nor would any other man. If anyone says that he has learned anything from me, or that he heard anything privately that the others did not, be assured that he is not telling the truth. If I corrupt some young men and have corrupted others, then surely some of them would have grown old and realized that I gave them bad advice and let them come here today and accuse me and avenge themselves. If they are unwilling to do so, then some other person, their kindred, their father or brother or other relationship should come here and tell me that I've harmed their family member. And then he basically lists a bunch of people who are in the audience who are, you know, his friends. He says, I could mention many others, some one of whom surely Miletus would have brought in as a witness in his own speech. If he forgot to do so, then let him do it now. But you will find the contrary, gentlemen. These men are all ready to come here to help their corrupter, the man who has harmed their kindred, as Miletus and Anatus say. Now, those who were corrupted might well have a reason to help me. But the uncorrupted, the, their kindred, who are older men, have no reason to help me except the right and proper one, that they know that Miletus is lying and that I am telling the truth. So Socrates is about to make his closing remarks in his defense, and he makes reference to a kind of person who, you know, might come to the court and beg and implore the jurymen with tears and bring his children and his friends and his family into court to arouse as much pity as possible to exonerate himself. And Socrates refuses to do those things. Uh, but he addresses that because he says, you know, some might be resentful toward me and angry about this, that I don't behave this way, and then cast their vote in anger. But, you know, in another Batman-esque move, he says, Nevertheless, I will not beg you to acquit me. Why do I not do these things? Not through arrogance, gentlemen, nor through a lack of respect for you. Whether I'm brave in the face of death is another matter altogether. But with regard to my reputation and yours and that of the whole city. It does not seem right for me to do so, especially at my age and with my reputation, for it is generally believed, whether it be true or false, that in certain respects, Socrates is superior to the majority of men. So I do not deem it right for me, men of Athens, that I should act this way towards you. And especially as I'm being persecuted by Miletus here for impiety, clearly if I convinced you of my supplication to do violence to your oath of office, I would be teaching you not to believe that there are gods, and my defense would convict me of not believing in them. But this is far from the case, gentlemen, for I do believe in them, as none of my accusers do. So with that, gentlemen, I leave it in your hands, and in the hands of God, to judge me the way that will be best for me and for you. So after that, the jury delivers their verdict, and they find Socrates guilty. Miletus has suggested that Socrates receive the death penalty, and the next part, Socrates is trying to convince the court not to give him the death penalty. So Socrates says... There are many other reasons for my not being angry with you for convicting me, and what happened was not unexpected. What I'm more surprised is the number of votes cast on either side, and I did not think a decision would be by so few votes. As it is, a switch of only 30 votes would have acquitted me. My leaders assesses the penalty of death. So be it. What counter-assessment should I propose to you, men of Athens? Clearly it should be a penalty I deserve. And what do I deserve to suffer or to pay because I have deliberately not led a quiet life, but have neglected what occupies most people, wealth, 
household affairs, the position of general public orator or other offices, the political clubs and factions that exist in the city, I thought of myself as too honest to survive in those occupations. What is suitable for a poor benefactor who needs leisure to extort you? Nothing is more suitable, gentlemen, than for such a man to be fed in the Pritanium. And the Pritanium was the magistrate's hall or a town hall of Athens in which public entertainments were given. So uh, this is what Socrates requests. So if I must make a just assessment of what I deserve, I assess it as this. Free meals in the Pritanium. So then Socrates goes through the list of possible punishments. What should I fear? That I should suffer the penalty Miletus has assessed against me? Of which I say I do not know whether it's good or bad. So if that's the case, then I'm going to choose in preference of something that I know to be very well evil and assess the penalty at that. Imprisonment? Why should I live in prison? A fine and imprisonment until I pay? That would be the same thing for me. I have no money. Exile, perhaps? I should have to be inordinately fond of life to be so unreasonable as to suppose that other men will easily tolerate my company and conversation when you, my fellow citizens, have been unable to endure them, but found them a burden and resented them so that you're now seeking to get rid of me. Far from it, gentlemen. It would be a fine life at my age to be driven out of one city after another, for I know very well that wherever I go, the young men will listen to me, as they do here. And perhaps some of you might say, but Socrates, if you leave us, will you not be able to live quietly without talking? And for those, I respond, no, it would be impossible for me to keep quiet, for the unexamined life is not worth living. So with this, perhaps I could pay a minya of silver. And one minya is the equivalent to like an average day's wage times 100. So it was a considerable sum. So he's like, so that is my assessment. And then he refers to like some of his rich friends. He's like, Plato here, men of Athens and Crito and, and some others should put the penalty at 30 minyas and they will stand surely of the money. So that is my assessment and they should be sufficient guarantee of payment. So then the jury goes away and they uh, vote again and uh, they sentence Socrates to death. So in his final remarks, he says a few things. He says, perhaps you think I was convicted for lacking such words to convince you. If I thought I should say or do something to avoid my sentence, but far from it, I would very much rather die after this kind of defense than live after making another kind. Neither I or any other man should on trial or in war contrive to avoid death at any cost. Indeed, it is often obvious in battle that one can escape death by throwing one's weapons and by turning to supplicate one's pursuer. And there are many ways to avoid death in every kind of danger that one will venture. It is not difficult to avoid death. It is much more difficult to avoid wickedness, for it runs faster than death. Slow and elderly as I am, I have been caught by the slower pursuer, whereas my accusers, being clever and sharp, have been caught by the quicker wickedness. So I maintain my assessment, and they maintain theirs. This perhaps had to happen, and I think it is as it should be. I say to those who voted to kill me, that vengeance will come upon you immediately after my death, a vengeance much harder to bear than which you took in killing me. You did this in the belief that you would be able to avoid giving me an account of your life, but I maintain that quite the opposite will happen to you. There will be more people to test you, people who I held back, people that you did not notice prior. They will be more difficult to deal with as they will be younger and they will resent you more. You are wrong if you believe that killing people will prevent anyone from reproaching you for not living in the right way. To escape such tests is neither possible nor good, but is the best and easiest to discredit others but not prepare oneself to be as good as possible. So with this prophecy to those who've convicted me, I part from you. So then he kind of sticks around and chats with his friends and he makes a bunch of statements. This is the closing statement. He says... To the people of Athens, this much I ask from you. When my sons grew up, avenge yourselves by causing them the same kind of grief that I caused you. 
If you think they care for money or anything else more than they care for virtue, or if they think they are somebody when they are nobody, reproach them as I have reproached you, that they do not care for the right things and they think they are worthy when they are not worthy of anything. If you do this, I shall have been justly treated by you and my sons also. Now the hour to part has come. I go to die and you go to live. Which of us goes to the better lot is known to no one except the gods. All right, there it is, man. Socrates, the great and powerful and wise, gets tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. Although he made some really good points and his defense was well put together, it was not enough to sway the 501 Athenians. Um, He lost by such a narrow margin. He says that there are only 30 votes in the other way would have uh, exonerated him or uh, acquitted him, as he put it. And uh, so, yeah, that's really unfortunate. There's a lot of things he said that kind of parallel the life that we live now. For instance, people that grow up who have an easy life, who have money, as he refers to his sons, um, they can often think they're special when they're not, or, you know, people think they're wise when they're not. And, uh, you know, how people have uh, egos and vendetta. If you embarrass them and they have power, they can sentence you to death. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of similarities. And um, and Socrates was uh, true to his roots. He said, I would very much rather give a defense like I did. In other words, he'd rather tell the truth and die than to lie to save his own life. And uh, that might be one of the reasons why we still read him today. So next week, I'm going to read the Crito, which is the dialogue that comes after the Apology. And Crito is uh, one of Socrates' rich friends. And so Socrates is in jail, and Crito persuades him to to escape, essentially. Because Crito, he's like, look, I have the money, let's get out of here. And Socrates uh, debates with him on whether or not that's a good idea. So tune in next week. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.